Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, all you wonderful, wonderful F1 fans out there in Canada and around the world. We are back. It is race weekend. Once again, the weekend that we all, all look forward to. And boy, oh boy, can I tell you, it was an extraordinarily exciting race weekend. But more importantly than that, if you're hearing my voice, that can only mean two things. One, that my name is Kelsey. And two, you've turned into the tuned into the newest episode of F101. And as always, we're going to start off this episode with the hot topics this week. This is everything you need to know in the world of F1. Two more drivers signed up till the end of 2024. Valtteri Bottas and Joe Guanyu have signed contract extensions to the end of 2024. I love this idea. I love the fact that they're putting more investment in these two drivers. More importantly, it shows that these drivers are here to stay and that the team from Salva and more importantly the team from Audi is having more faith in these drivers when Audi does take over in 2025 or 2026 I should say one thing that you are going to notice next year when it comes to the Alfa Atari or the Salva or sorry Alfa Romeo and Salva team is that the Alfa Romeo symbol will officially be gone for the 2024 season so it is just the Salva racing team which gives them a little bit more leeway on which drivers they wanted to resign until Audi took over and with this driver's market Salba definitely had some really really solid options especially in the the uh the rookie um area of the contracts of the drivers they also had some drivers that still haven't signed contracts yet so for them to show faith in Bottas and to show faith in Joe Guan Yu it's a massive relief to both drivers and I think it's a very solid move moving into even if they only give them another one-year extension to 25 or they give them an extension to 26, I think this is a very good idea for everybody in general. Um, Bottas brings a lot of experience to the team. He has a lot of thinking outside the box um, experience, a little bit more than Joe does. And Joe, to be honest, he is the future number one driver of that team, even moving into Audi. He's been working with the car since day one since he signed up. Uh, he has that future experience and that future level-headedness that you're going to need in a newer, maturing driver when you bring in a whole new team. I don't think Valtteri Bottas will be around when Audi does come into play, but until then, 2024 extension, fantastic. Glad, glad to see these guys will stay on the track. Moving on, think back to last year. Think back to the beginning of this year. And there was a lot of controversy around the budget and the cost cap for the Formula One cars. It's still relatively new. Uh, we're going into the second season of the cost cap where, you know, there is no $500 million production budget for a car anymore. You've got, you know, well north or well south of $150 million for everything included. Some teams did very well with it. Some teams really did not. Uh, and, uh, team that stood out for not really that got penalized for it, obviously Red Bull, which you're going to see that penalty come into play more this half of the season than you did in the beginning half, less aerodynamic testing time, so on and so forth. Massive 
hoopla and hubbub and some very, very upset Formula One teams and fans and managers and all that kind of stuff, thinking the punishment that Red Bull had received for this season was much too light. They got a $7 million fine, and they also got less aerodynamic time than they would have even though they won last season. So it begged to differ, and it really begged the question of how are the teams going to do coming into the 2022 season for the cost-cap evaluation? Some teams were like, well, obviously Red Bull's going to go over because they didn't learn their lesson and they're cheating. Uh, another team, or some people were saying that places like Mercedes and Alfa Romeo and Alfa Tari and maybe even Aston Martin, they were going to see the punishment that Red Bull received and they were going to roll the dice going, well, if they go over by that much, think of what we can do. And even if it's a $7 million punishment, it's not that much for us. We can deal with that just to get some of that aerodynamic advantage. Well, the 2022 cost cap review is out and kind of surprising even for me and for some of the pundits that have been talking about this. Every single team, all 10 teams have come under the cost cap. So for those experts and for those media members and for those fans to say, well, you know, you can't successfully run a Formula One team under these circumstances. The budget's not high enough, all this and all that. Obviously, it, they can run a very successful organization with this kind of budget. It only took them one year to get everything under control. They revamped the guidelines. It was a lot less gray area where this price falls under here. This price falls under there. There is no gray area. Well, you can use a little bit for A, a little bit for column B. It's very much more black and white. You can use it. You can't use it. You're over. You're under. That's it. There's no if, ends, or buts, and hums, and hawing, and well, maybe we could stretch it a little bit, or if we move this number here, it'll work out better for them. All of that's gone. I'm happy to see that the teams have successfully and quite quickly adapted this budget cap restriction and that we don't have you know a couple of the straggling teams or a couple of the higher end teams going well we're a little bit over but not as much as last year that they've really buckled down they've gotten their financial situations organized and it's it's done and dusted we don't have to hear about controversy for this year we're not going to hear controversy for next year everybody's got the idea of where they need to be where the money needs to go and what the punishment will be if you go over that being said because these teams do know what the cost cap is, they do know how to do this under budget now. The next team that does go over, and I'm not saying it's going to be by a lot or it's going to be by a little, but just the next team in general that does go over this cost cap, I think they are absolutely going to be hung out to dry, not only from the Formula One CEOs and all them, but from the FIA in general. They are going to make an absolute statement with whichever team it is that goes over the cost cap. Now, I would feel a lot less annoyed and a lot less upset if it was one of the bigger teams that did it. If it was McLaren, if it was Ferrari, if it was Red Bull, if it was Mercedes, I would be like, yeah, okay, they can, even though they're on the cost cap, like everybody else, they can afford to pay for the punishment. Where if you got a team like Williams or if you have a team like Haas or you have a team like Alfa Atari where they're just starting to catch up and someone does an oopsie in the decimals in the wrong spot and all of a sudden they get nailed with this massive fine. In my opinion, for some of the smaller teams, if the punishment is too big, you're absolutely going to kill the entire team. Whether it's financial, whether it's points, whether whatever the case may be, because when you look at the driver's standings and the driver's points, 
and you look at the constructors points with the teams, it means just as much money to the drivers as it does to the team, depending on how many points they get. If they go over, let's use Haas for an example. If Haas goes over by a million dollars and then all of a sudden the FIA is taking away constructors points for them, that's millions of potential dollars that are not going to that team from sponsorship because they didn't hit their goals. Yes, you should have stayed in the cost cap. Yes, you did break the rules, but it will absolutely destroy smaller teams if they decide to make an example or when they decide to make an example of another team. It's it's kind of like, I don't want to say it should be a sliding scale, but there needs to be some kind of common sense when it comes to some of the teams that are just hitting the cost cap going. If we hit them with so many points and such a financial fine, because you know, to make an example of them, they're going to absolutely bury the teams. But that is something that they need to look forward to, or not look forward to, they need to look into for the future. But as of the 2022 uh, cost cap, which the penalties would affect the 2024 season, every single team is under the cost cap, which is absolutely fantastic to hear. Now, moving on to one of our bigger topics that has been kind of spread out through the last two weeks, and I'm calling it Flex Wingate. So what is essentially happening is that some teams, and I'm not saying who they are, but some teams have figured out that the more flex you have in the back wing or the side wings or the wings on the floor of your car, the more flex you have, the more the car moves with downforce, which gives you more speed, which gives you more grip, and which ultimately gives you an advantage over the cars. Okay, There are guidelines set forward by the FIA and Formula One saying your car has to be within these boundaries and guidelines for how stiff or how flexible parts of your car and the car itself can be. This way it equals and evens out the... Um, competitiveness across the board and more importantly which a lot of people don't realize it's more about safety than anything else there has been some rumors that some teams have been you know dabbling in the gray area and almost in the no-go area but they haven't been told to stop about how flexible their rear wing is now if you think well it, it, it makes kind of sense but how does this work if your wing is too flexible so think of it this way you're driving down the road, you're in a Formula One car, and you have a super stiff wing. So you're forcing the air to go through the certain parts of the car that you have built it to do. So the car will go you know, down and fast as much as it can, and the air is being forced to go through the holes that you make it, essentially. So if you have a really stiff wing, it doesn't move, obviously. You have your DRS button, it opens, you go faster. Okay? Make sense? Now, if you have a really flexible back wing, you give your car more of a, we'll call it natural advantage. The faster you go, your back wing, the whole, the whole structure is going to start to tilt back, which means you have naturally less air friction on the car, which means you go faster, which means you gain a, a certain amount of natural DRS, natural speed, and then it also creates a, a natural effect for downforce that you did not yourself provide with your aerodynamic upgrades. And then when you open your DRS, you're going that much faster. So some teams have the ability to do this, and some teams just don't have the budget. Now, each team is only allowed to do this so much to the actual structure itself. 
But then some teams have figured out, okay, we'll do the actual structure to the absolute limit, and then we'll start to tweak other parts of the wing to, to go flex just a little bit more, and then just a little bit more, and just a little bit more. They're treating each part of the wing as a separate piece. So instead of following the guidelines, or they've looked at the guidelines going, okay, this structure of the wing can only move so much. Okay, that only will do that structure. It moves till point A. But now we're going to tweak this little piece to move to C. And then all of a sudden you start gaining more and more flexibility in the wing, which makes you go faster with better downforce. Same with the side of the, the skirts. You look down the side of the car and you'll see the floor, you'll see those fancy designs on the bottom of the car. So those are only allowed a certain amount of flex and they have to be one solid piece. It's all the cutouts. None of them are attached to the floor itself. Which means like you're not creating the floor and then bolting on another piece to the floor to create more downforce. Everything has to be one piece. Well, some teams have figured out that if you make the back end of the floor really, really thin, but then you add a support, it will shift a certain way. It'll give you more flex than it naturally would if it was one absolutely thicker, solid piece. So they're tweaking the gray area here and there for the skirts. Same thing for the front of the wing, where you can tell it's more noticeable in the front, but they're still adding a little bit more flexibility, and we're talking left to right twisting when you're hitting the corners, so it's almost like the air scoops the car into the corner for better grip. Well, the FIA has taken a look at a lot of these cars, and they have revamped the jurisdiction of which they have to you know, upgrade under, and they have improved the safety guidelines for the construction of all of these pieces, essentially rendering anything fancy, outdated, and illegal. So they haven't made a specific judgment towards any individual team. They haven't gone, Aston Martin, you're not allowed to do this, take this off, that's illegal. Red Bull, you're not allowed to do this, that's illegal, take it off. Which tells me that a lot of these teams are starting to really push the boundary, so they've made a blanket statement to go, all right, here's where you're allowed to go, here's where you're not allowed to go. This is not a immediate impact kind of statement. This is more of a, hey, when you're in this area, you need to start, either you need to stay where you are or you need to start revamping something that fits into the guidelines a little bit better. So this came into effect, especially for this race where teams like Red Bull, Aston Martin, and a little bit of Mercedes, that some pieces there, all of a sudden they see new pieces on the car that are not track specific but it's technical directive specific now, which tells me that they were looking at some major teams going, you can't do this, you need to fix it before the next race, which made qualifying definitely a lot more interesting than it needed to be, and also a lot of uh, brand new looks that nobody was really expecting. So I'm explaining all of this, and you might be thinking, well, Kelsey, you mentioned the safety factor. What would be the safety issue when it comes to too much flex in any of these parts of the car? Well, these parts of the cars are not made from, you know, steel or fiberglass or wood or anything like that that has real rigidity to it, which can withstand slightly more G-forces and more direct impact. These pieces are all made out of carbon fiber. So when you bend so much, there is no cracking in the carbon fiber. It just explodes. So the safety feature for this would be, especially for the rear wing and the parts on the side of the car or the, the floor is that if you put too much G-force on them and they flex too much, 
there isn't a crack. Oh, I kind of noticed you get to slow down a little bit before the piece falls off. It's just, oh, look, it's gone. Three, two, one, and that's it. That's all we got left. There's nothing there, which is a massive safety hazard, not only for the driver of the car, because then it takes away the control they have doing, you know, imagine going 315 kilometers an hour around a corner, and all of a sudden your wing flies off. That's part of your support system. You have no control of your vehicle at all. You're going to hit a wall. You're going to roll. You're going to have a massive crash. Not only that, but the piece that flies off your car, carbon fiber has a tendency to almost shatter when it hits the ground hard enough, which means the drivers behind you and anybody else around spectators, marshals, drivers, cameramen, anybody in that general vicinity has the potential of getting injured from absolutely spraying fiber or carbon fiber everywhere. So long story short, the director took a look at what these guys were doing, took a look at the limit of what they were doing with the pieces that they had, and they essentially said no more. You have to stay within these guidelines for the next race, and they gave them like a week's notice. You have to stay within these limits for the Singapore Grand Prix and moving forward. I'm happy they gave these uh, directives now in that two-week gap they had or the week gap between races. Um, I'm happy that they made it more of a black and white issue and less gray area. I think the sport will definitely flourish with less gray area. Here are your rules. You can do this. You can't. It'll make it um, a little bit more consistent and a little more even of a competition. And last but not least, the last topic, I have just mentioned the Singapore Grand Prix, which was this weekend's race. Uh, there has been a massive change in the Singapore Grand Prix track. In my opinion, this definitely makes it a more entertaining track. A faster track, definitely. It also makes it a slightly shorter track with less turns. So let's get into that. When you're looking at the Grand Prix from last year and years before, there was a section that was right by the marina where when you go into the pit lanes, when you come out to rejoin the track, there is a series of four corners and you go underneath. Essentially, you go underneath the road through a tunnel and then you pop up on the track. Because of these upgrades and because of the land development around the track, which is the main reason why they changed it, they have taken out the bridge section, so you're not going under through a tunnel and then popping up back onto the track. They have also taken away four corners that were along that section. Essentially, it was a left, right, left, right, and then you're back on. It also took out, and you're saving about 21 seconds on the fastest lap of that track. Because of there's less turns, that means you can go faster. All of a sudden, that straight stretch in front of the grandstands is one long drag race now for the racers. I think this is a fantastic upgrade to the course. Sometimes you'll see an upgrade on an old classic where it works, but you upgrade to make it better, and it kind of takes away from the excitement of the track. This is definitely, in my opinion, not one of those factors. It's a much faster track. It gives more of an opportunity to pass and more of a racing atmosphere. Singapore is the first night circuit of the year and it is also one of the more difficult tracks to pass on just because it is a street track. It's like Monaco, but not, not nearly as technical, but they still have massive issues trying to pass on this track where when you take out those four corners, you're adding speed, you're taking away time, and you're giving the drivers more of an opportunity to actually make the race exciting and it gives drivers that are out of place a little bit more time to get back where they should be which i think is just fantastic for f1 overall but 
you know, we got to see how it works out. If they're going to keep these changes, if they're going to tweak it one more time, uh, you know, only time will tell. And that, folks, that is your hot topics for this weekend. I hope you enjoyed them. Let's get straight into qualifying. And, I mean, first thing to note before you get into qualifying is that because Singapore is such a specialized track, a lot of teams make upgrades to the vehicles and to the cars just for this track specifically. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But not every single team does it. Where When you look at this year, we've got 8 out of the 10 teams making massive, massive changes to their cars. Some very track-specific and some just you know performance-based just before Singapore. So let's go through that list. Red Bull, they've got two brand new upgrades. They're both performance a new floor edge, and a new rear wing. Now, remember we just talked about the flex wing gate. They had a very specific wing they've had on their car for quite a few races. Then all of a sudden, they have to change it when this new technical directive comes out. So it is a new wing, but it's a very untested new wing. Same with the floor edge. They had to change that as soon as the directive came out, which means they had less than a week to tweak both of these upgrades and hopefully make it you know, track specific and to make it fast on track itself. Mercedes, uh, the front corner of the car, again, that's more of a track specific upgrade, which is not uncommon when it comes to these Formula One teams. Ferrari and Mercedes generally do that every single year. They have like a, essentially a Singapore Grand Prix kit that they put on the vehicle every year. So Ferrari or Mercedes did the same thing front corner. Ferrari did the same thing. Aston Martin also did the same thing. They all did front corner modifications just for how much G-force this track puts on the car, as well as just, you know, overall performance upgrades. Now, the rest of the team were like, for example, McLaren. I think McLaren decided that they were going to do part three of three for their upgrade for the Singapore Grand Prix. They've got nine upgrades. Eight out of the nine upgrades are a performance upgrade, which means they must have typed in the Singapore Grand Prix specifications and limitations and all this kind of stuff. And then they've got the rear beam wing that's very track specific. They generally don't. I mean, McLaren generally makes bigger decisions and bigger upgrades than that for track specific. But when you're looking at the side pod inlet, the halo they changed for performance, the floor body, the engine cover, rear cover, rear suspension, rear wing end plate, and the front wing end plate, all of that is a performance upgrade. Was this an intelligent time to add this massive package onto your car for one of, arguably, one of the more difficult street tracks on the Formula One calendar? Personally, eh, not really a good idea in my opinion. Personally, I would have saved these for, you know, further on in the season. Probably the Circuits of America would be a fantastic track to do. Um, Japan, definitely not a track you want to do that with just because, again, it's such a specific track. You don't want to throw a bunch of, I don't want to call them random upgrades, but you don't want to throw an entirely new package on for when it comes to Japan. Hopefully it works out for McLaren. They're on a streak of making really good upgrade decisions as well as the car performing just ridiculously well. Alpine put on three upgrades. Aston Martin or Alfa Romeo put on four. Alfa Atari put on 
eight upgrades. It's just, you can't really go wrong when upgrading an Alpha Atari. It's not really going places, but hopefully this will help them out. Again, all of them, seven out of the eight were a performance upgrade. The only one that has a very track-specific upgrade would be the side pod inlet. And that means that's where the, the air goes through the side pod. Alfa Romeo with their four all-performance. With the Alpine, two out of the three were performance. Again, beam wing, very track-specific, trying to get that downforce and grip throughout the corners. What surprised me about mainly one of the teams that didn't do an upgrade at all, even though they've got the budget cap, is all of a sudden Haas has decided that they like their car, which is great. If you've got confidence in your vehicle, that is amazing. Or... They've just decided not to, they've got an upgrade package coming. Maybe they just decided not to do the upgrade package for Singapore just because they don't think they'll get the most out of that package. I hope it's the latter of the two. I hope that they have this upgrade package that they love and they just want to make a more impact with their upgrade. Because as we all know, as we've all seen, just because you put an upgrade on the car doesn't necessarily mean it's going to improve the performance of the vehicle. All right, with that being said, let's get into qualifying uh, Q1 track. The wear and tear on these tires this year was just a little bit above and beyond what normally happens. So your track temperature was not nearly as high as normal. It was about 36 degrees Celsius, which is not bad for Singapore. Um, it's a little bit actually on the cool side for Singapore. I've seen it where it gets into like the low 40s. But when you're hitting those kind of temperatures, your tire strategy kind of goes out the window. There wasn't any qualifying um, spe uh, specific tires that you had to run, which is nice. Um, it's just some of these guys were not getting the track times that you thought they would be getting just because the degradation on the tires was just, I don't want to call it horrendous, but it was pretty damn close. Um, everything's going well. Everyone's pushing the limit uh, a little bit slower than what you would expect, yet faster track times because you're missing those four corners and everything's all hunky-dory, everything's you know going well. You're coming down to the last track time, which is when generally everybody tries to fit in their hot laps because you're trying to out-strategize the other teams and get their driver through before anybody else. And the inevitable happens. The, I don't want to call him the goat of crashing because that's not fair and he hasn't crashed that much, but but the second half of the Aston Martin team, the desperate part of the Aston Martin team, and in my opinion, the most useless part of the Aston Martin team. Yes, we're talking about Lance Stroll. Final lap, push lap, trying to get into Q2. He's been fighting with the car all weekend, both him and... Alonzo, not exactly happy with the setup for the vehicles this weekend, but they're doing their best. Alonzo, obviously doing better than Lance Stroll. He's pushing it. He's on a desperation lap because he's just, he's not getting the qualifying time that he needs. He's just, he should just pack up and go home. And well, he kind of did that in a very spectacular way, in a very costly way. We're talking $1.2 million costly way, by the way. Uh, Lance Stroll ends up crashing in Q1, oversteer, going way too fast, just massive desperation, trying to get that lap time that he know he can't hit. So instead of, in my opinion, intelligently just finishing the lap, taking the loss, and not making it past Q1, just, like I said, absolutely oversteers, takes off like 
over half the car, in my opinion, hits the wall, spins. He gets out of the vehicle, thankfully. Yes, he is okay. As much of a bad driver as I think he is, I am happy to report that he is okay. He got out of the car under his own steam, which is fantastic. Um, he set off the G4 sensors in his car. So what that means is that there are a bunch of sensors in the helmets around the cars. And if you have an impact or you have a crash or you just exceed a certain g-force upon your body and the car it sets these sensors off and when you set these sensors off it's an automatic trip to essentially the hospital to make sure they're okay so if all some of you remember in i want to say 2021 when lewis hamilton deliberately put max verstappen into the wall at silverson and he hit 52 g's when he hit that wall He's autumn, even though he got out on his own steam, he automatically went to the wall or he automatically went to the hospital. Same with this um, circumstance. We don't know how high the G's went in his car, but it was high enough that he set the sensors off and he had to go to the hospital for checkout. Unfortunately, for about five or six drivers on the track at the time, they were doing their hot laps. And when that kind of impact happened, there was debris everywhere. The car was almost in the middle of the track. So they immediately red flagged the rest of the qualifying, which means five or six guys got caught out in definitely spots that they didn't want to be. So some of the guys got eliminated a lot sooner than they needed to, which is unfortunate, but it is part of racing. So your 16th to 20th, Valtteri Bottas in 16th, Oscar Piastri in 17th, Logan Sargent in 18th, Joe Guanyu in 19th, and obviously Lance Stroll in 20th. In my opinion, Piastri and Joe, they would have made Q2, but they just got caught out from the red flag, and you automatically have to slow down. You are not allowed to continue. Time was up anyways, so that was the end of Q1. A little interesting thing happened before the beginning of Q2. So when you're watching Formula 1, all the drivers are lined up in pit row, and you see a red light, which means, you know, don't go. Red means stop and green means go. So most of the drivers, when the green light turns on, whoever's front of the queue takes off because they've got clean air. They have no cars in front of them. They can warm up their tires appropriately. From there on out, from probably about the third car back, they space themselves accordingly so they can warm up their tires without running into the guy in front of them. You are allowed a certain amount of leeway when it comes to the space, but you are not allowed to hold up the rest of the line. You're not allowed to impede other drivers. Uh, well, either Max wasn't paying attention or something had happened to the car that he didn't want to tell anybody or whatever the case may be. He had to fart or something. You know, He just wasn't paying attention or he sneezed or something. But the gap between him and the car ahead of him was probably two and a half, three seconds. So even before the race started, even before qualifying started, all of a sudden there is an impeding investigation going to the stewards against Max. And this kind of just solidified the type of weekend that he was about to have. So Q1's done, massive crash, strolls okay. About 25 minutes later, the track is cleaned off. Time for Q2. Fantastic. Now, all of a sudden, the drivers are more used to the track temperatures and the conditions. Everyone's on either mediums or softs. The tires are really starting to get into their sweet spot where they need to be. But you still have 15 cars out, which means you got traffic, which means you really have to pay attention. Well, unfortunately, for Max, 
He got busted and nailed two more times in Q2, both for impeding. One, Yuki Sonoda was on a hot lap. Uh, Max was on his out lap, just kind of feeling the tires warming up. Anybody who saw this feed, absolutely slam dunk, 100% saw and knew and witnessed Max essentially in the way. Yuki Sonoda upset, rightly so. Absolute 100% impediment from Max. Okay, that gets flashed and flagged, sent up to the stewards for review. Okay, perfect. Next, moving on, he gets nailed again the next lap for impeding on turns 17 and 18 of the track. Now, it was not a very specific he impeded this driver or that driver, but as an overall, they called it impeding, but essentially what it was is he was going too slowly and he was backing up traffic around these two corners. So that gets flagged by the stewards, and it goes upstairs again for investigation. This is not going well for Max. Meanwhile, he's, you know, he's top 10, but he's not killing qualifying times, which anybody out there who has watched Formula One more than once knows, if Max makes it into the top 10, fantastic, and then he just lays the hammer down in Q3 and always gets first spot. But then... He's not catching up in time. Neither is Checo. The Red Bulls seem to be struggling ridiculously hard. They don't have the speed. They don't have the grip. You can see them fishtailing and sliding across the track. You know, let's say out of the 19 corners, let's say, you know, 12 out of the 19 corners. They just don't really have the control that they should. And everyone's trying to figure out, is it, is it a tire issue? Is it a grip issue? Is it just oversteering? Is the setup wrong? What do we got going on? Because up until this point, it's a foregone conclusion Red Bull's winning. Red Bull will be 1-2 or 1-5, but there's going to be a Red Bull on pole and then everybody else after that. And he just couldn't do it. Max, finally, and we're talking with less than a minute or it might have been the last lap i think max just made it across the the checkered flag in time to do a hot lap he's going and he's not making it so he crosses the line finally he's intent okay oh my god the world champion two-time defending champion he's across the line he's gonna make it intent but there's still like you know three cars behind him that have to cross and you're like okay it's uh you know uh lot it's like Lawson, Gasly, and you know Albon. It's not. It's not guys that are on a super fast circuit this weekend. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. All of a sudden, we come to the finish line. Okay, Yuki Tsunoda in in fifteenth. Alex Albon. Okay, he made it to fourteenth. Checo Perez. Very disappointing weekend for him. Qualifies thirteenth. Gasly's twelfth. Okay, perfect. Max is going to make it. There's no way Liam Lawson's going to outdo the the champion. He's going to. You know, he's he's not driving something spectacular. He's driving an Alfa Tauri with some new upgrades, but he's still learning the car. And the F1 gods had decided, you know what? No, it's uh, it's time to throw a wrench in this party. We're going to shake things up, and we're going to shake it huge. Liam Lawson crosses the line in 10th. Bumps Max Verstappen, the two-time defending world champion. The man that's won 10 races in a row, who's got, you know, 300 and some odd points. He, Max has more points in the drivers than most teams do in the constructors. 
That's how dominant he is. And he gets booted in Q2 by a rookie. By a rookie driver who took over less than three weeks ago with an hour's notice. And all of a sudden, he's out. Lawson beats Max out for the 10th spot by seven thousandths of a second. If you were watching it, I'm sure you were like me and everybody else around the world. I've seen some of the, the YouTube clips and pardon my French, but when I saw this, I was losing my fucking mind. I'm like, there is no way that just happened. It's understandable if Max gets booted out from you know, anybody in Ferrari or Aston Martin or Mercedes, even McLaren, the way they're running, it's like, oh my God, okay. It's it's surprising, but you're going, okay, that person's been on a streak. This is amazing. This is great for them. But for Max to have such a bad weekend, and I'm not taking anything away from Leon Lawson. Like, I, I am really not. But for Max to have such an off weekend that a not even four driver, four race deep driver knocks him out of Q2 was just absolutely astonishing. It was just the F1 world as of this year, in my opinion, was shook up. Put on top of that, all of a sudden Max has got essentially three impeding penalties for the stewards to look over. You're going, oh crap. Okay, so either it's going to be, it has to be grid points. It had a great placement so he's gonna start 11th but then once these penalties come through he might even be you know 14th 17th like where is he gonna end up by the time all these penalties come through so let me explain to you what happens before we get into q3 max has all these penalties to go through the stewards are looking at all of them you know what his penalty was penalty punishment fuck all nothing he got a five thousand euro fine. That is it. I am a Red Bull fan. I am a Max Verstappen fan. I really am. And I love the way he drives. I love all of it. But I am also a Formula One fan. I am a fair play fan that rules need to be enforced. It needs to be equal for everybody. For Max to receive two reprimands and just a five euro, 5,000 euro fine is absolutely horseshit. I don't care if he's the two-time champion. I don't care if he's the 12-time world champion. I don't care if he is the president of the Formula One and he's driving a platinum gold car. I don't care. If you have that many infractions in the same 15 minutes, you need to be penalized. Where he gets off with nothing, essentially. I'm sure he has 5,000 euros in his pocket. He could sell his watch and he's got 5,000 euros and pay off the fine. It is absolutely unacceptable. This, and I don't agree with the statement from my friends who are Ferrari fans and McLaren fans and all that, but this is 100%, in my opinion, favoritism. This also shows the fact that every Formula One race has different stewards. They don't have a team that travels from race to race to race. They have separate stewards for every race. The F1 needs to pool their resources together and they need to have a set steward team. If it's five, if it's 10, you follow the same rules, the same guidelines and you do these races. I think Max should have gotten at least, at least a five place grid penalty for all the dumb shit he did in Q2. Impeding Sonoda. 
that was probably the 5,000 euro fine where it was anybody else. They would have gotten three places. Absolutely. And deservedly. So Max should have gotten much more of a punishment than he did. It is favoritism from the FIA and from F1. And it is not right. In my opinion, they need to show that no matter who you are, no matter what you do, that you get penalized for breaking the rules. But Hey, that's my opinion. So after my little rant, we move into Q3. And this was an honestly the most exciting Q3 that we've had all season because it wasn't a foregone conclusion on who was going to get first. Hell, it wasn't even a foregone conclusion who was going to get, you know, from first to eight. These guys were absolutely so close to one another. There really was just a guessing game for 15 minutes that you just did not know who was going to race. It was back and forth. It was super clean, super fast, um, no impediment, no penalties. It was fantastic. And I am <laughs> begrudgingly going to admit that, yes, Ferrari was on point for qualifying. They were not just one-lap wonders. They were consistent through the entire day, from Q1 all the way to Q3. Communication was great. The car was on rails. It was just a fantastic qualifying day for Ferrari, and it didn't stop when Q2 was done. Ferrari ends up on pole and third. It was it was fantastic. When you're watching them race, you're going, they're going to be dangerous this weekend. They are absolutely going to be dangerous. The upgrades they brought are very much worth the gamble when it comes to Singapore, and this is definitely going to be a race to watch. Top 10. Carlos Seitz in first, George Russell in second, Leclerc in third, Norris in fourth, Hamilton in fifth, Kevin Magnussen in sixth, Fernando Alonso in seventh, Esteban Ocon in eighth, Nico Hulkenberg in ninth, and I mean, Lawson was there for Q3, but let's be honest, he had absolutely no chance. He qualifies in the top 10. In 10th, I love the fact that we've got Hulkenberg in there. We've got both Hosses in there, which is fantastic to see. Um... I mean, for or Mercedes is just, they're still on a roll. It's fantastic to see them just absolutely kill it in qualifying. This will definitely set up a very interesting. Now the part you've all been waiting for, we're talking about the Singapore Grand Prix. It is race day. Track length is 4.9 kilometers, 62 laps, 19 turns, top speed of 315 and a half kilometers an hour. Fastest lap was a minute 36 back in 2018 by Lewis Hamilton. Do not forget, this is the old track. Top qualifying time itself was 1.30 on the new track. So right away, qualifying time, we're saving at least six seconds off of the track record. And we had a little bit of drama and a little bit of news to start off the race day. Lance Stroll, who had that massive crash in Q1, did not start the race at all. He opted out. He was feeling super, super stiff. The FIA released a report uh, going due to medical exemptions and medical observation. He was going to skip the race. We will see him, or we are at least expected to see him in the race next week in Japan. So unfortunately for Aston Martin, they're already handicapped, topped onto the fact that Lou, or Fernando Alonso wasn't exactly having the most wonderful weekend in qualifying. Uh, didn't exactly have the most astonishing race either. Uh, not due to 
any exterior facts, not because of weather, not because any other driver. It was just, you know, one of those races where it was just, it was okay. It wasn't wonderful. Definitely was not his fastest um, race. I mean, he, he didn't even finish in the top 10. Like, it was just one of those races that absolutely he could have forgotten and the team will hopefully move on from coming next week. Joe Guan Yu as well was expected to start on the grid. He will start in the pit lane, or he did start in the pit lane, uh, because he broke the park from a rules. He got some power unit changes as well as they absolutely changed his setup to be more track specific. Apparently, uh, Salba didn't quite like, and he didn't quite like the setup for his car. So, uh, automatic pit lane start. When it comes to this race, it's not exactly the worst place to start in pit lane. It's all about how your car performs and what kind of tire strategy you will have at the beginning of the race. So with the grid all mixed up and people not being where they're supposed to be and some drivers a little bit higher than they probably are used to, the beginning of the race was absolutely amazing. It was nice. It was even. It was fast. When it comes to the Singapore Grand Prix, especially around the first lap or two, generally at the first half of the race, it's the most exciting. Uh, there's a lot of challenging. These guys have absolute grip on their tires. They want to gain a couple of places normally where they wouldn't have been, especially look towards the Red Bulls to start doing that. P11 and P13, not quite where they wanted to be, and that means they have to make up a massive amount of ground. Uh, it was all good up until lap 12, uh, lap 2, I should say, excuse me. Yuki Sonoda, the first DNF of the day, uh, in my opinion, essentially got dive-bombed by... Checo Perez, he super late lunge into the corner. What he ended up doing is he ended up coming up underneath Yuki Sonoda's tire. He ended up giving him a puncture. Yuki was not able to go all the way around the track, so he wasn't able to finish the race. From what you could see on TV and his reaction and looking at the car itself, even though you've got a puncture and it is lap two, and he wasn't, I mean, it's 4.9 kilometers, I still think to this day, to this specific moment talking to you now, that I think Yuki Sonoda absolutely could have made it around the track to get his tire replaced for an unintentional early pit stop. There was no call on the radio for him to stop the car. There was no call from the engineers to you know, take evasive action. He essentially just pulled over himself and stopped the car. He stopped it in a good spot. Uh, he didn't necessarily, he wasn't in anybody's way. So personally, I think he kind of, he sounded super dejected. He sounded super upset. Obviously, you don't want to puncture. You don't want anything that is going to impede your race or make you place worse than you would have. But it was the second lap. So you finish the second lap. You are massively behind. Did he think that he had absolutely no chance of gaining any kind of sponsor, any kind of points in the race. From the tone in his voice, that's what I think just immediately flashed in his head. And he just kind of gave up. I think if he was able to think it through a little bit further and be a little more calm, you push the car as much as you can around the track. You're not going super fast. You may or may not end up getting lapped. But for where he was... And how far they were ahead of him, I think he would have been able to make it in for an early pit stop. By the time everybody else did their one stop, he would have been able to unlap himself and actually have made 
progress in the race and potentially gotten up to the points. But Yuki being Yuki, massive on radio or yeah, on radio, what seemed to be a hissy fit, super disappointed, super dejected, and just ended up not finishing the race due to a puncture in the tire. It wasn't a hydraulic puncture, it was a puncture in his tire. So first DNF of the day, I still think he would have been able to continue on. There was a slew of safety cars, no red flags, thankfully, uh, but a slew of safety cars, yellow flags in this race, and a little bit spread out throughout the day. Uh, second one would have been lap 21. Uh, Logan's, I believe it was Logan Sargent, ended up uh, glancing the wall, or actually, you know, he hit the wall, took out his front wing, ended up pinned underneath his front wheel. He did make it all the way around to the pit, um, to pit lane, but he had scattered so much debris that they ended up bringing out a full safety car for the cleanup of the actual track. Like I said, he was able to make it to pit lane. He got a new wing and was able to make it back on track. And that was, I believe it was two or th at least three laps by the time they got everything fixed and cleaned up. Uh, next safety car, we're talking lap 43, Esteban Ocon. Uh, he didn't end up finishing it. He had a gearbox malfunction as well. Um, no estimate on how much damage it had done to the rest of the car, but it was a safety car. He was not able to finish lap 51 Valtteri Bottas DNF. This was a very quiet one. He just kind of pulled into the pit lane. People noticed if you were a Valtteri Bottas fan, but if you weren't paying attention to the back markers, really, you didn't really notice that he didn't finish the race. Uh, he had massive and uncontrollable overheating in his car, starting at the brake ducts, and it just kind of worked its way through the car. So he was another DNF, unfortunately. Uh, and the last DNF I'm going to bring up a little later in the explanation of this race. It was a huge implication for Mercedes and a very, very unfortunate DNF, but 100% self-inflicted for this driver. Uh, theme of the race strategy of the race was absolutely 100% tire management. The teams had figured out, especially in qualifying in full practice, that this course, this track was going to be super hard on their tires. This track, on the other hand, is also only 4.9 kilometers. It's not the shortest, but it's not the longest either. You can definitely, with proper tire management and proper speed and proper decision-making when it comes to taking your chances with overtaking other vehicles, you would be able to do a one-stop pit lane or one-stop shot. Um, right off the bat, you would easily, or it was easy to tell that they were definitely not going as fast as they were in qualifying. Within the first 10 laps, it was obvious to see, and the track time showed it, that these guys were 10 seconds slower than qualifying. And definitely the reason for that is, when it comes to most street circuits, especially when it comes to Singapore, when it comes to Monaco, it kind of ends up being like a DRS train, or to me, it ends up looking more like an indie car race, if you're familiar with that. Everyone is in a line, there's not a whole lot of places to pass, so if you're first, you're first, unless something massively changes, you crash, um, there's a screw up in your pit stop with new tires. So to be totally honest, the first 40 laps of this race was just boring as hell. Not a whole lot happened when it came to the actual race on track. But if you're a fan of this course, and if you're a fan of F1, when you look at a boring race on track, you start to see how the strategy is going to become very interesting and very important as early as lap 21. Perfect example. When 
that safety car, everybody jumped in for what would have been like a four lap to 10 lap early pit stop. So if you're on the medium tires, your lifeline would have been, the lifespan would have been to about 25 laps. If you were on the hard tires, that makes it about 35 laps at the latest. So first safety car, or the major safety car, lap 21, everybody jumps in for tires except for the two Red Bulls. They're both running hard, so they're taking this to the absolute limit that they can for the tires. When you've got a hard tire that has a lifespan of 35 laps, and there's a pit stop at 21, you have, or the opportunity to pit for free essentially on lap 21, you have to make a massive and very, very important decision. And this decision is either going to help or hinder your race. Well, the Red Bulls decided that it's too early to pit. You can still get at least 14 more laps the way they save their tires in Red Bull, that you can get at least another 14 laps, if not more, and you can potentially hope for another safety car, and then you'd be able to go in for, for tires. It's not... It didn't work out for them. They still didn't have the pace from qualifying. They didn't have the pace from the weekend in general, from full practice. So when everyone's done pitting, Red Bull is on, at that point, 21 old, 21 lap older tires, and they're stuck in that DRS train. Meanwhile, you've got Mercedes that's coming up. You've got Ferrari, and you've got McLaren. More on the side of Mercedes and Ferrari, they are operating at the high quality level that you expect these teams to operate at. The communication between the drivers and the engineers, absolutely 100% spot on. Both teams, all four drivers, when they're driving with their, their other teammate, it's perfect synchronicity. They're helping each other. They're not hindering each other. They're giving each other the DRS pull that they need to stay up in this DRS train. They're making it possible for the team itself to stay within that specific time frame to the first place driver. It was amazing to see. It's about time that you saw that. It was a super interesting race. By this time, Max and Checo have come up in spots, but they're not really quite there to qualify or to fight for the top position yet. By the time the pace has finally decided to pick up, we're talking about lap 46 out of 62. So the majority of the race has been this strategic push and pull and a specifically tire management strategy. Who's holding on to the grip? Who has no grip left? Who has been pushing their opponents just enough where you're wanting your opposition to run through tires, but you still have enough? Checo and Max now respectively are both in the top 10. They're still struggling to pass, but because they changed tires so late, they both switched to mediums. So that's their one stop. They're going to be able to make it to the end. They start making a lot more progress than you would generally think when it comes to the DRS train, just because they're taking those extra chances. But by the time lap 50 comes along, the top four start to pull away. At this point, your top four are going to be Sites, Norris, Hamilton, and Russell. This is an amazing race. Leclerc hold on, held on as much as he possibly could. He was in third for a while. But this weekend, Sites started first. And even with all the pit lane or the pit changes, he stayed first. He had that strategy where it was nothing but clean air in front of him, which means he can take the time to save his tires as much as he needs. 
essentially he's dictating the speed of the race just because he's going fast enough in certain spots where people can't catch him, but he's going slow enough in the technical spots where he's saving the grip for his tires. So what essentially he's doing is that he's setting the pace for the entire group of racers. If you're not going fast enough, no one can pass anybody because there's no room. You're not spread out to make the changes that you need. So the top four pull away, and we're talking, you know, 46 to 50, they really put the pedal down. Now from 50 to 56, the strategy that was in place by Ferrari was something we have not seen all season and not at all last season. Because in my opinion, it wasn't Ferrari's strategy. This was Carlos Seitz's strategy. He finally he finally found that backbone to implement what he wanted to implement on the track that he knew he could win. Where Ferrari can tell you as much as you need. Your engineers can tell you all of the ones and zeros until their face turns blue, until the cows come home, but they're not the ones driving. Carlos is driving. He knows the pace. He knows how his car is feeling. He knows what the tires feel like, and he has a very good idea on how much life he has left in the tires. So what he's doing is he needs to hold back three of the fastest drivers that are in contention this race for at least 15 laps. And how does he do this? <laughs> he uses Lando Norris, essentially, whether Lando knew it or not, he was using Lando Norris as his defense. He was keeping him far enough away that he couldn't catch up, but he was keeping him close enough where Norris would catch the DRS, which would hold off the two McLaren, or, or Mercedes because they had to keep up with their own DRS. Essentially, he made those three battle each other while giving himself free air. It was amazing to see. It was a thousand IQ play, and you could definitely tell this was not the engineer's play because they would never have come up with this. They would want Sites to pull away as much as he possibly could, potentially blow through his tires and lose first place. Not intentionally, but that's what the numbers would tell him that they need to do. Where Carlos recognizes, I need the other drivers to fight amongst themselves, and I'm going to set that up, and here's how I'm going to do it. At one point, Carlos was about 2.5 seconds ahead of Lando Norris, and then we start to get into like the less than 10 lap range. This is the really important time, because all four drivers, they still have newer tires, like they're still in relatively good shape, but this is about the time where they start to drop off for grip, and this is where a spin-out can easily happen. A slight oversteer in a corner will make you lose massive amounts of time and potentially be passed and putting yourself into a dangerous position. But what Carlos figured out is he's getting the numbers from Ferrari. Okay, you are 2.3 ahead of Leclerc. You need to put this much distance between you and them. And he essentially ignored that. He went from 2.2 to 1.8. And then all of a sudden, the next time they call in, like, oh, Norris is... 0.9 he so he's in that drs zone he's less than a second behind him going okay norris is 0.9 behind you and carlos replies i know like essentially he's letting his engine let that sink in he's letting his engineers know that yeah i'm putting norris exactly where i want him to be and then it clicked in it's because you're going to give him drs which will pull you two together 
you still have clean air. Norris is still trying to chase you, which means the Mercedes are trying to chase Norris. And by this point, the Mercedes are almost getting a little desperate because someone needs to make a move to either get close enough to pressure Norris or one of the Mercedes wants to get the pole. Whether it's going to be Hamilton or Russell, they both want those points because it's pole. Like, you want to help your team, you want to get the points, but at the same time, you want to be in third, second, or first, so you're going to do your damnedest to get there yourself because you've got your own points and your own position to worry about. And that battle essentially raged on for the last 10 laps, and between the two Mercedes, it finally came down to the last lap, almost the last corner of there, and this is where the third, or the, the fourth and last DNF came in, lap 62, couple of corners left to go. Hamilton is pressuring Russell, and the way that I see it, it wasn't in a overly aggressive way. It was in a very competitive, hey, we need to get there. You help me, I help you, I get enough DRS, I might be able to pass you and catch Norris to help Mercedes out. Uh, that's not how this turned out. There was absolutely no collision. There was no contact between the two of them. Coming into the corner, Russell just, I don't know if he didn't know how far into the corner he was. We don't know if there was a malfunction in the brakes. We don't know if he just lost concentration for a half a second. We don't know what it is, but he absolutely overshoots the corner and not being able to react quick enough because these are short corners. They're not very deep because you're on a uh, street circuit, he ends up going straight into the wall. And we're talking like he didn't destroy the car. He didn't blow up. He literally just hit the car, crunched the bit, got stuck in the tech barrier, and that was his day. Like a couple of corners from third, from a pole position, he ends up hitting the wall. And it was a safety car from there on out. So everybody kind of just stayed where they were. Or I don't even think they brought out the safety car. I don't think they bothered to. He ends up losing third. He does not finish the race. He goes from massive points for Mercedes to absolutely zero. And he is absolutely destroyed, as anybody would. And it was nobody's fault except his own. It's not that he was getting greedy, that he was trying to be a dick and have his elbows out trying to make sure Hamilton didn't pass him. He wasn't being over-aggressive. I think it was just a lack of concentration for just that split second. And that's all it took for him to hit that barrier. And you could, again, when you're listening on the radio, it just, you felt for him 100%. It was just nothing but heartbreaking agony. You could tell, you knew, and he knew how close he was to getting that third position and getting pole, and it just was gone that fast. Lewis Hamilton ends up taking third. Uh, Carlos Seitz end up, ends up finishing the race. It was an amazing race. He led it from start to finish. And by the time everything was said and done, I think he won it by like 1.5 seconds. He played that strategy perfectly against Norris and against the two Mercedes. He knew exactly what he was doing. I think when it comes to Carlos and what happened and what he did and what he realized in this race, this is going to be a turning point for the mentality that he has for the rest of the season. He now has validation that his strategy, without asking permission, his strategy works. Because guess what? You're the driver. He knows now he's the driver. He's the one on track. 
doesn't matter what the strategy tells you. Sometimes the computer systems work, but sometimes you got to drive with that instinct and that knowledge. And hey, you know what? If you've got an idea and you're ahead and you know you've got a very solid car, your car has been amazing all weekend. You've got the pace. You've got the consistency. The, there's been nothing wrong with this car all weekend. It has been on point. If you've got the confidence to try something that's not even risky, but a really good strategy plan, if you can put it into place, fucking go for it. And this is what's going to happen. It was an amazing strategy from him. Again, unfortunately, Leclerc was a little bit put out to dry just because Carlos was faster. Leclerc was just kind of, you got to go with it, but he willingly sacrificed the points for the team. They both end up in the top five, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think Leclerc would have been able to keep up with the Mercedes and the McLaren anyways. So, I mean, top four for him, I think, would have been the best case scenario anyways instead of burning out your tires and potentially finishing seventh or eighth. So, great strategy from Ferrari all the way around. Lando Norris, McLaren, their new upgrades, he's just a rocket. They are getting better and better every single race, and I will think they will continue to get better every single race from here on out. Top 10, let's get into it. Number one, Carlos Seitz for the victory. Norris in two. Hamilton third. Leclerc in fourth. Max Verstappen starts in 11th, ends up in fifth. Pierre Gasly in sixth. Oscar Piastri in seventh. Checo Perez started in 13th, ended up eighth. Uh, the only reason why both Ferrari, or Red Bulls, in my opinion, were so, we'll call it low in the top 10, is just because they had that super late pit change. Uh, Lawson was ninth. First points for him in his third race. And number 10, rounding out the top 10, Kevin Magnuson. Let's go back to Liam Lawson for a half second. Um, I think he is the best pickup and should have been, and I'm admitting I am wrong when I thought Nick DeVries was going to be the best rookie. I am 100% wrong on that. I absolutely admit this. Liam Lawson is, in my opinion now, and I think some people are going to start to agree with me on this, putting some serious pressure on Daniel Ricardo to keep that spot for Alfred Tari for next season. Less than five races, pulls out ninth, getting points. He already outscored Nick DeVries for the entire time that DeVries was in the race. He's outscored Daniel Ricardo, granted, only for two races before he broke his wrist, but he is showing some massive, massive promise for a rookie that essentially came out of nowhere that you're looking at going, well, you raced in Japan. That's not really a whole lot else that I know about you. He's coming out of the gate strong. He's learning very, very well in a car that is very difficult to learn in. And now he's got all these new upgrades he gets to play with. He's getting back-to-back -back races. Daniel Ricciardo was back in pit lane. He was at the Singapore Grand Prix. He was amongst the drivers doing the strategy talks and you know doing all that kind of helpful stuff with Alfa Atari. Obviously, he wasn't driving. Rumor has it that he will be available to race in Japan at the earliest, which is this coming up weekend. I don't know if he's going to be ready for that. It hasn't been that long since he broke his wrist. So I'm going to give it a 50-50 shot that he's not in Japan. Um, I can see him round about, I don't know, maybe Coda at the earliest. Maybe the U.S. Grand Prix will see him back in the Alfa Atari seat, but Liam Lawson, like if you've got money on this rookie for getting more points as he drives, the more races he gets, that's going to be one of the sure bets you'll have in Formula One this year. And with the end of the race, let's go through our driver's standing. Max Verstappen is still in first with 374 points. 
Checo Perez is still second with 223 points. Lewis Hamilton now officially leapfrogs Fernando Alonso into third with 180 points. Fernando Alonso is now in fourth with 170. Carlos Seitz is in fifth with 142. Leclerc is in sixth with 123. George Russell is in seventh with 109. Lando Norris is in eighth with 97. Lance Stroll is in ninth with 47. And topping, rounding the top 10 is Pierre Gasly with 45 points. Constructors' championships remain absolutely unchanged. Red Bull with 597 points. Mercedes with 289 points. Ferrari is now in third with 265 points. Aston Martin is still in fourth with 217 points. McLaren is in fifth with 139 points. Alpine is sixth with 81. William is in seventh with 21. Haas is in eighth with 12th. And Alfa Romeo is in ninth with 10 points. And Alfa Atari is in 10th with 5 points. Going back to Ferrari in third and Aston Martin in fourth, and even with Mercedes in second, the way that Mercedes and Ferrari have been battling back and forth, they're not that many points behind them. Mercedes is 289, Ferrari is 265. It is definitely within the realm of possibility and reality that Ferrari is going to stay on this momentum that they've gained the last couple of races of being more consistent and they've got some new upgrades that are working that they can most wholeheartedly and confidently pass Mercedes for second place in the Constructors' Championship. Mercedes, at this point, they have been very consistent. They have been scoring points nine times out of ten, and both cars have been scoring points nine times out of ten. But for them to keep their second spot, and obviously they're not passing Red Bull, they're not catching Red Bull at all, but for them to continue on with the second spot where they are, they need both cars to compete and to score consistently. And I'm saying in the top five, not even the top 10 for points, but in the top five from now until the rest of the season. And we only have eight more races to go. We have eight weeks of racing, folks, and then that's it for the 2023 F1 championship season. Mercedes can keep second place. Ferrari can definitely take second place as well. Um, Aston Martin at this point, unless something drastically changes, I don't see them catching Ferrari for third at this point. There's just too many points differential at this point. Uh, Lance Stroll can't even finish qualifying at this point, and he's still contracted until 2024. I think Lance Stroll is going to be gone, if not midway through 2024, but at the end of 24, he is absolutely 100% the liability, and you may like this comment or not. If you're an Aston Martin fan, I apologize, kind of, sort of, not really. If Aston Martin, for whatever reason, loses, well, I mean, they can't lose fourth, even with McLaren at 139 points, but because Aston Martin went from second to third to fourth, on my opinion, from my opinion, and this is just me, list in the comments below if you like this opinion or not. It is 100%, and I mean 100%, Lance Stroll's fault. If he was able to perform at least a quarter of the time that Fernando Alonso has, they would not be in this position. They still may be fourth, but at least they would be substantially closer and they would be in the fight for third, if not second, if Lance Stroll could actually perform. Yes, he had a broken wrist, wrist at the beginning of the season because of an accident. Okay, that sucks. 
Now you've demolished your car and your two sort of race. So you don't race. Okay. Both of those instances from the reports I've read from the biking accident to the, the accident that happened, they're 100% both your fault. You are a liability to Aston Martin, Lance Stroll. You do not, you don't deserve to be there. You are holding the team 100% back. My thought, hot take, I would absolutely love to see this. You dump Lance Stroll, you pick up Liam Lawson if he doesn't stay with Alfa Atari. That's a combination for the future for Aston Martin, 100%. All right, let's get into the story of the race. We all know what it is. It's the wingless bull in the room. Uh, the end of the streak. The 10 race in a row streak is officially done. And it wasn't because it wasn't anything astronomical. Red Bull just sucked to their level. They had what some people would consider a normal weekend for everybody else. And it started, from my point of view, it started with the fact that they had the wrong setup for full practice. And by the time they figured this out, it was too late to change the car back. The car was too high. This tire strategy, letting them both run that long on hard tires, was absolutely wrong. The new parts that they have on the car were unproven. They were untested. They were last minute. It was a bad setup. The car was slow. The grip was inconsistent. Red Bull standards, absolutely 100% shit weekend. But it was a normal weekend for everybody else. I think they out-upgraded themselves. You play within that gray area long enough that you're going to get bit eventually. It has to end. Again, a Red Bull fan, but an F1 fan first. I am sad to see the streak end, but I am extraordinarily happy to see a new driver win. To have a more complex race than just Max wins. Max wins. Who's going to get second and third because Max won? You didn't know who was going to win from the beginning to the end. You didn't know who's going to be second, third, fourth. You didn't know the top 10 period at all. Is this a bad thing? Does this make Red Bull look human? For a half a second, yes, it really does. It proves that even the best drivers with the best cars and arguably some of the best strategists for over three years in a row can get it wrong. It does give some people some hope. It gives some people a more centered opinion of, well, there is fault in them that they are human and that they can get it wrong. But now when you look at the flip side, the way that Red Bull is structured and the way that the team has been operating for the last three years, it would not surprise me. And a lot of you are going to hate me to say this. And it may make for a very boring second half of the season. But it would not surprise me that this is the only and last mistake that Red Bull makes for the rest of this season. The way they have been operating, it's just next tier. It's next level. There's a reason why Max won 10 races in a row. He wasn't cheating. 
He wasn't bending the rules. It wasn't because the stewards and the and the the race officials turned a blind eye. It's just that Red Bull is that tuned in that he won ten races in a row. But you can't win them all. And he has come to realize this. And now this is going to refocus the team. It's going to re-energize. And if it makes them a little mad when it comes to the next race, I would absolutely 100% expect it. But in the same breath, you can't be too over-focused to win again because that can just breed even more mistakes. If Red Bull keeps the rear wing and the wing skirts or the floor wings on for this coming up race in Japan, and it's another dismal disaster, expect that car to be 100% blown up and remade and brought back to what it was at the beginning of the season. No upgrades, no nothing. They will go back to the base, air quotes, base model RB19 that they won the first half of the year with. Did Ferrari win to deserve to win the weekend? Absolutely. They have been so consistent and they've been hit with so much bad luck for the beginning of this season and last season that absolutely they deserve this win. Did Lando Norris deserve to be in second? Absolutely he did. All the drivers in the top 10 today absolutely 100% deserve to be where they were. And you can see what Formula One looks like when it's a more level playing field. You get rookies scoring points with less than five drives underneath them. You've got teams that would not necessarily make it because Red Bull is in there pushing everybody down getting points. It made for a much more interesting race, in my opinion. But if you expect Red Bull to not take any more chances for the rest of the season, for their strategists and their engineers to not take any more risks from here on out, you will be definitely proven wrong. Red Bull is not a team to sit back and just accept the loss. They will accept it, but they will learn from it and they will grow from it. But even a Titan can have a bad day. Even an F1 juggernaut can bleed. And when they do, this grid with these drivers and this kind of talent will absolutely 100% take advantage of it. But the rest of the teams for the rest of the season will progressively get closer and closer. Red Bull, for the last eight weeks of the race, last eight races, now definitely have to deal with the fact that they have even less time in the aerodynamic chambers for development and research for this year's car and for the 2024 car because of the penalty they received from last season. So I do expect Red Bull to continue on their winning ways. But it is definitely not going to be the blow that we are used to or that we begrudgingly see from the beginning half of the season. They will come out full bore. They will try to make a statement in Japan, which if you've ever watched a race from Japan, it's not it's not an intelligent rap, intelligent track to make a statement on. Because just the weather alone will punish you, will make you make a mistake, will absolutely fuck up your race in a heartbeat, in a blink of an eye, in the snap of your finger, your race is done. Red Bull will still try to make the statement. I think 
how they bounce back will determine how their season will end. If they win, by how much, or if they try to take unnecessary risks. But, hey, that's my opinion, and that is the story of the race. Let us look forward to this weekend. We have got the Japanese Grand Prix, September 22nd to 24th weekend. All right, people in North America, this is going to be one of those if you really want to see it live, which I do highly recommend. I know they say this a lot, but this is just going to be, it's not necessarily a fast race, but it is a very interesting race. You definitely want to see it live. You don't want, you know, any of your friends spoiling it for you that decide to get up as early as this is going to be to show you what kind of race you've had. But if you're like me and you want to watch the full practice and the weekend warm up, all that kind of stuff, all of the action starts at Thursday morning. <laughs> Sorry, guys. 1.30 a.m. is the weekend warm up. First practice, you are looking at 9.30 p.m. our time. So it's either really late or really early, depending on how you want to look at it for the race, at least. Full practice on Friday, you are looking at midnight to 1 o'clock. Full practice three again is Friday. That is 9.30 p.m. our time. Pre-qualifying show is Friday, and you are looking at 11.30. Qualifying is at midnight to 1 o'clock on Saturday night or morning, depending on how you want to look at it. Post-qualifying show, you're looking at 1 o'clock to 1.45 a.m. Pre-race show. Now, this is a lot of Saturday stuff just for the time it starts. Pre-race show for us in Canada, you are looking at 10 o'clock our time, local time, till 10.55. Race time is at 11 o'clock. Goes till 1. Post-race show, 1 o'clock to 1.40. So, if you are dedicated enough to watch this race, it will be very weather-specific. It will be very track-intensive if you can stay awake that long. I, for sure, will be up watching it live 100% cheering everybody on and yelling at the screen as much as I do. With that, folks, that concludes our breakdown of the Singapore Grand Prix. I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. Can't wait to talk to you again. Bye.